The following presentation was recorded at the Buddhist Society of Victoria, Malvern East, Australia. Please visit our website at bsv.net.au. But today I was going to mention, of course, what's today? It's Sunday. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. It was Father's Day. So, so it's, good, it's good to reflect on how much we owe our parents, particularly our fathers. You know, I think uh, often we don't really reflect um, with gratitude on our parents. You know, once a year I really feel is not enough. <laughs> and also when we do reflect with gratitude, when we're really thankful to our parents, Actually, we feel happy. If it's a genuine feeling, it's a, a, an emotion of happiness. So it's something to really encourage. And at the end of the day, does Dad need the new shaver, the new mower, the new this, the new that? He probably needs the appreciation, the feeling that, wow, it was worthwhile after all. <laughs> so that's good to, to remember. It's the feeling that really counts on a day like today. Because our parents, as the Buddha said, they, they brought us up, they fed us, and they showed us the world. And this is quite something, actually, because as uh, human beings, we would not survive otherwise. So we owe them big time. <laughs> I'm sure they think that too. <laughs> so, and of course, without them, we wouldn't be here. Exactly. So, which is a, a blessing in itself, that we can practice a spiritual path. Sometimes people think their, their parents might not have been the most ideal parents. They might be the parents from hell. <laughs> but still, nevertheless, they've given us the opportunity of a human rebirth. And that's quite something. And we can transcend that sort of negative that we may have had from our upbringing, our experiences with our parents. And at the end of the talk, I'll give a short blessing for our parents and even for those um, dads that have passed away. I was thinking of my dad this morning, <laughs> thinking he passed away in 1991. I thought, yes, on Father's Day you can remember, you know, those that have passed away too. We tend to only think of those that are around us still. But it's good to think of those that have passed away, that were a part of our lives, that gave us this opportunity. But I'm not going to talk about parents. I'm not going to talk about Father's Day. <laughs> I'm going to talk about something different. And that is, I think uh, many people have probably seen this statue, actually. There's a very famous statue of the Bodhisattva, and it's all bones. It looks like, like a skeleton. Has many people seen that one? It's really, really emaciated. And um, it's... Um, it's a very popular image in, in Sri Lanka particularly and in monasteries uh, in general because it's like an, an image of striving, someone that's putting their life on the line, isn't it? They're really going for it. They're not uh, armchair enlightenment seekers. <laughs> They're really putting everything into it. And so it is an image of striving and energy. And I remember, this is leading somewhere, <laughs> I remember being on pilgrimage in 2001 with Ajahn Brahm in India. And we went, of course, to uh, uh, Bodh Gaya. That's where the, uh, the Buddha became enlightened. But we also went to where he, they say he practiced the austerities, these really harsh uh, 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 practices 
that were intended to bring enlightenment. It was a common idea at that time in India, still is, <laughs> that these things would bring enlightenment. And in that, you climb up, you go up in the mountain, it's sort of on a mountainside, and there's a cave. And you go into the cave and there's this statue of, of the bodhisattva, all bones and, and uh, very thin, emaciated, looking, looking really uh, like he's about to pass away. And so the group was busy bowing to this statue when Ajahn Brahm said to us, you know, this isn't the Buddha. This wasn't the Buddha. <laughs> In fact, this is when the Bodhisattva was practicing the wrong way, coming from wrong view, coming from the view that by doing these things, you know, by starving the body, going without sleep, with uh, doing all these difficult breathing exercises that the... Uh, the Buddha did, and so on. This would bring enlightenment. And so Ajahn Brahm pointed that out, and we thought, wow, that's quite true. And he said, he said to us that this, is, this will not take you to uh, awakening. This is not the way to practice. It's an image, actually, a reminder to us. This is not the way to practice. But certainly it shows the, the Buddha's um, conviction, his, the fact that he will put his life, put his life on the line to find enlightenment, but realizing it, hang on, this is the wrong way, <laughs> which is what he did. And of course, that's the, uh, the lesson of that uh, Buddha statue is talking about, of course, the two extremes that the Buddha said we should avoid. And this is what he realized from his own experience. And uh, of course, the first one and he mentions is indulgence in sense, uh, sense pleasures, in sense pleasures, and he, of course, as a very wealthy person, they, they often say as a prince, he he experienced a lot of luxury, a lot of comfort. He experienced all the sense pleasures probably to the maximum possible. But he said about these sense pleasures in his first teaching, indulgence in sense pleasures which is, if we should avoid them, this is for those that have gone forth, he says that they are low, crude, ordinary, ignoble and pointless. They don't lead to enlightenment. And I think no matter how pleasant a sense experience is, it doesn't have a deep, deep meaning to it. It's enjoyable while we're experiencing it for sure, but there's no meaning for it. And it doesn't take us towards enlightenment, towards a mind that is noble, a mind that's risen above the ordinary, a mind that is left behind suffering. It doesn't lead to that. And he knew that. It's quite interesting that really, um, and you see it quite often in the Buddha's teaching, it was much easier for people who had experienced a lot of wealth, a lot of comfort, had experienced these sense pleasures to the max, as it were, much easier for them to give it up. <laughs> Because they'd seen it doesn't lead to this deep happiness. It doesn't lead to any understanding. It doesn't lead to wisdom. It doesn't lead to a sort of satisfaction inside. It just uh, often for people, and you see it these days, because we live in a very comfortable society, <laughs> people find that after a time it becomes meaningless. And that's, that's the, whole, the whole thing. Sense pleasures by themselves are enjoyable at the time, but they, they are very short-lived. And once they're over, that's it, you know. Eating a great meal is a very pleasant feeling, and then that's it. <laughs> and then, you, then we're looking for the next sense pleasure. 
So it's like we go from one to the other, to the next, to the next. And of course the Bodhisattva, when he was living in the palace, he saw that very, very deeply. And he said, we've had the feeling, as many people do today, it's not enough. <laughs> the cozy, the comfortable chair is not enough. <laughs> you know, we want to find meaning and understand what this life is about. And that's what the Bodhisattva, when he left the palace, that's what he was seeking, is, is to find out the purpose of life, the meaning of life, to find out an ending to uh, birth, rebirth really, old age, sickness and death. All these, and uh, sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief and despair, we usually add to that. All those things, he was looking for an answer to that. That's why he left that comfort. It wasn't enough. It wasn't, it wasn't a meaning, a purpose for his life. But then it's very interesting because after he did uh, leave the palace, uh, he met some meditation teachers, uh, Uddhika uh, Ramaputta and uh, Ulara, uh, Alara uh, Kalama. And these were meditation, famous meditation teachers at the time. And he practiced what they taught, and he attained what they taught, which was quite deep meditation, really. But strangely enough, after doing that, he gave, gave up their teachings and then started practicing these really uh, torturous practices of, of you know, not eating, eating incredibly little, uh, um, uh, being outside, holding the breath was another one that he <laughs> practiced that he did. And uh, all these things that he did, that he, he, as it were, he did it to the max, uh, maximum possible without dying, but he came very close to dying. And he practiced that for six years. And he said of, of that, that indulgence in self-mortification, call it self-mortification or torturing, tormenting the body, is painful, ignoble, and pointless. It doesn't lead to uh, enlightenment, to understanding the nature of existence. And it's painful, ignoble, it's not going to make one any uh, uh, an enlightened being, an Aryan, a noble one. So he practiced that for six, six years, and as I said, he came very close to dying. In fact, you know, the, uh, the Buddha, Lord Buddha reports that the Devas commented that he's going to die, he's going to die, and his skin had gone black, gone very dark, and but in actual fact he had a very golden quality to his skin, but because of the fasting, and he talked about his ribs being like crazy rafters sticking out, and he could touch his belly button, and he would touch the spine, he could touch the spine, he could touch the belly button. Wow, this was really extreme. And I think there was a message in that too, he did it to, this was a common understanding at the time, you do these practices and it will lead to enlightenment. It will lead you to understanding the nature of reality. And so he was, I, I feel he was doing it in order to prove, no, this is not the way. But as I say, in India, they're still practicing them. And many of the practices that you see in the, the Buddha's uh, discourses, his talks, still going on. <laughs> it's amazing. But very fortunately, he realized, he remembered uh, when he was practicing like this, eventually, it's a shame he didn't remember it earlier, <laughs> that when he was 11 years old and his father was occupied, it says in the Sutta, occupied, but we, maybe from the commentaries, we say his father was doing the plowing ceremony and he was sitting under a rose apple tree 
and he went into, was sitting there uh, uh, meditating and went into the first jhana. This is at 11 years old. And he remembered this while he was this emaciated and, and uh, with no energy. Uh, he said he'd go to the toilet and he'd fall on his face because he was so weak and all these things. And he was surrounded by a group of five um, uh, monks, other monks who were, who were doing the same thing. And they thought he was going well. He was, he was really he was going for it. And they were very impressed with what he was doing. But when he remembered that experience of the first jhana, it came to him. He said, could that be the path to enlightenment? And then he says, then following on that memory came the realization. This is indeed the path to enlightenment. So that was a real breakthrough for him. He realized that this path of torturing the body, this is not the way. It's, it's, the way, it's the way of the body, isn't it, really? Not of the mind. And then he thought, why am I afraid of that pleasure that has nothing to do with sensual pleasure, pleasures through the senses and unwholesome states? And then he thought, I am not afraid of that, sen- of that pleasure since it has nothing to do with sensual pleasure and unwholesome states. So he, he remembered that and then he realized, of course, very naturally, hang on, the body is far too weak and almost about to pass away. In order to develop these meditations, you need a body that's reasonably healthy, that's functioning, that has some strength, some energy. And that's when he started eating. And of course, what was the first meal he had? First thing he ate? All the Sri Lankans know. Kiribati, that's right. It's called uh, uh, milk rice. It's a very popular dish in Sri Lanka, uh, milk rice. And they make it very often, actually. So, And I know one of the um, uh, Anagarikas, these the trainees at Ajahn Brahm's monastery, quite a few years ago, used to call it enlightenment food. <laughs> I kept thinking, oh, wouldn't it be, that'd be so easy if it were <laughs> just like that. And of course, what happened when that, when, when uh, the Bodhisattva started eating? His five companions, the other five monks who were also fasting and doing all this tough stuff, they were disgusted. <laughs> they thought he had really lost the plot and he was giving up the spiritual search, giving up the spiritual practice. And uh, they say that these other five uh, monks, four of them were sons of the astrologers that had predicted the future of the Bodhisattva. And the fifth one was actually one of the astrologers. When the, the Bodhisattva, the Buddha-to-be, was born, they, of course, as they probably still do, they called in the astrologers or they consult, the, they, they do a birth chart, uh, a, a chart for the future of that child. And the astrologer said, oh, this, this, this child will be extraordinary. He'll, he'll either be a wheel-turning monarch, so someone that conquers the world, or he'll become a fully enlightened Buddha. And so, of course, those five companions of his probably thought, uh-oh, <laughs> he's going he's gonna to become a wheel-turning monarch. He's not going to. It's their worst fear had come true, they thought, when he started eating. Um, and they, of course, they soon left, they left him because he, they thought, wow, he's, he's going back to this life of luxury. It's just, it's just milk rice. <laughs> but they considered that a life of luxury. And so, of course, you know, then after they had left him, he was on his own and he was eating again. 
He's building up his strength. And then he went to the banks of the Naranjara River, which is in Bodhgaya, and flows through Bodhgaya. And, the, and there he found the Bodhi tree. And he said about that, this is an agreeable piece of ground, a delightful grove, with a clear flowing river, with the pleasant smooth banks nearby, and nearby a village for alms resort. This, is, this will serve for the striving of a clansman, intent on striving. So that's where he reached enlightenment under that tree. But it was only after eating, only after maintaining the body in reasonable comfort, not indulging it. I don't know how much milk rice he ate that day, but I'm sure he wouldn't have overdone it because it's not very healthy if you've been fasting to eat too much. And of course that night under the Bodhi tree, what did he see? First watch of the night, they say he saw millions of rebirths, millions and millions of rebirths. Not just one, <laughs> not just two, millions of them. And as I say to many people uh, when I recount that, I say, what would you feel if you just saw millions and millions of rebirths, that you had been born, you had this name, you lived in this society, you liked this food, you had these problems, and then you passed away, and then you did it again and again and again. What would you feel? I would feel enough. <laughs> I often say, because we're often a lot of Sri Lankan people, Ati, Ati, more than Ati, I think it would be really, really extreme. And then, of course, in the second watch of the night, he saw that the, 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 uh, how we're reborn due to our actions and due to our speech and to, due to the way we've thought, due to our minds in, in the past life and previous lives before that. That causes, that's the mechanism for where we're reborn, the sort of life we'll have next. And then the last watch of the night, of course, is the important one. But these two understandings, of course, really set him up, set up the Buddha to, to see the Four Noble Truths. Because he would have seen impermanence, he would have seen a lot of dukkha, a lot of suffering problems in those previous lives, and he would have also seen which one of those persons was I. Which one of them? Realizing non-self. That the, this was just a process that was going on and on and on. And so in the last watch of the night, uh, the Lord Buddha says, he destroyed the negative, the taints, these negative qualities in the mind that are seeking for happiness from sense pleasures, seeking to continue to exist, keep going, keep going and, of course, ignorance as well. So he destroyed those by understanding the Four Noble Truths. So after his enlightenment, of course, he thought, who will understand us? And, of course, initially he thought, well, no, it's too, too difficult for people. But then, of course, he remembered his teachers, you know, those two meditation teachers I mentioned, Uddhika Ramaputta and uh, Alara uh, Kalama. And uh, he remembered them, but they'd passed away and they'd gone to an existence with many, many eons, a very long life because they were very deep meditators. And then he remembered the five companions who deserted him. <laughs> and he thought, yes, they will, they will understand. So he traveled to the, uh, to where they were. He was in Bodh Gaya and so they were in Varanasi 
Right? It's quite a long way. I didn't look up on Google how far it is, but it would have taken quite a while. But actual fact, after his enlightenment, they, they often say that for six or seven weeks, uh, the Lord Buddha was digesting the experience because it would have been so overwhelming, this totally a total overturning of everything that he had understood before, seeing things in a completely different way. So for six six weeks, I think they usually say, he was sitting under various trees, standing, watching, looking at the Bodhi tree, contemplating what he had experienced, understanding it. And then, of course, thinking, yeah, pretty difficult to explain this to others, <laughs> uh, but did. And then he travelled to where the five monks were in Varanasi, and they, they, of course, they thought, well, he's a, he's really, he's given it up. He's really, um, you know, um, not a spiritual seeker. He's not really serious. And so they were, when they saw him coming, they decided that when the before they saw him coming, actually, well, when they saw him coming, they thought, well, we won't, we won't show him any signs of respect. We won't go and collect his bowl, take his robe. Um, give him water for washing the feet, you know, and all these things, show him and uh, bow to him and so forth. But as soon as he came closer, they couldn't stop themselves, so it says. And then, of course, the uh, uh, the Buddha, now he was the Buddha, uh, he, he told them he'd become enlightened, he'd discovered the deathless, and, uh, you know, that this was, uh, he was, he would teach them this, uh, the way to the deathless. And they didn't really believe it was possible because they thought, well, he's given up. How can he have discovered anything? He never discovered anything before, and now he's saying he has. And they called him by his family name, Gotama, and they called him friend. And, and the Buddha said, it's not appropriate to, to call a Buddha you know, by the family name and as friend. And uh, he said this three times, and they kept saying the same thing. How could you have possibly you know, um, developed anything from from your indulgence, <laughs> from eating. And uh, then the Buddha said, uh, probably out of desperation in a sense, have you ever heard me say this before? And then they said, no. <laughs> and then they started calling him uh, Venerable, Venerable, or Bhante, so after that. So what was the first teaching that the uh, the Buddha gave? What, what do we call that? Hmm? Yeah, Dhammachakapawatana Sutta, yeah, that's the one. And it's usually translated as the setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma, the wheel of Dhamma. I quite like starting the wheel of Dhamma rolling. It gives you the sense that it's, it's, it's something that started. And of course, you know, the, uh, the wheel of Dhamma is like a, a, an image of something that will go all over the world, something that will spread, because you talk you, th- you talk of these uh, uh, wheel-turning monarchs. These are this is what the Lord Buddha would have become if he hadn't become a, a Buddha, and this is someone who conquers everywhere, and this is what the the Dhamma will do. It'll go out, and it's unstoppable. So the uh, the Buddha says there, and of course. What's the first teaching in that sutta of the uh, starting, setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma? First teaching is? Before that. Yeah, the middle path, the middle way. That's it. 
So that's what I was. Re- that's where I was linking it up with the statue. Remember, I was talking about the the statue. He's talking about the this. First of all, he talks about the middle way, and this is such a an important a teaching that he he uh, gave. And I'll go into that a little bit more in a minute, actually. And it's uh, very important. This is a, this teaching. This first teaching is actually really, really deep. And it's very easy for us as Buddhists. If you're a Buddhist and you've read these teachings, it's very easy for us to say, to say, "Yes, I know, I know, I know the Four Noble Truths." But really, you know, and I've, I experienced this myself because I've been looking at the ra- uh, during the rains retreat, which we're having now, focusing on the Dhamma Chakravartin Sutta, this Sutta, this first teaching. And wow, the depth is just incredible. But we can say, yeah, I know, it's suffering and the origin of suffering and the cessation of suffering and the path leading to the cessation of suffering. You can say that. But to really go into it is really in a, a valuable thing to do because you, you see the depth of these teachings. And uh, as I say, I'm dedicating this range retreat to that. And my next talk will be on the Four Noble Truths. <laughs> so I'll follow up with that. So it's, a, it's this interesting teaching because everything that came after it fits into the Four Noble Truths, believe it or not. So it's, a, it's a, an extraordinary teaching. And what an amazing a way to teach, you know, something, the first teaching contains everything that came after, and that's a huge amount of teaching. So it's, uh, it's well worth us going into the, uh, the, uh, Dhamma Chakapuatna Sutta, this first teaching, setting in motion of the wheel of Dhamma. And the middle way, of course, part of the reason for starting with it, you've heard the story, that the five uh, other companions, the five ascetics, they they thought he had started indulging. So he's explaining to them, "No, I am not. I haven't returned to a life of indulgence. I haven't given up the spiritual path, because that for them, you know, eating equals giving up the spiritual path." And but he's also telling them those practices that we were doing for six years, they don't work. <laughs> they won't take you to enlightenment. And so that's the importance of of those uh, practice uh, that first teaching. It's such a it really bridged, uh, gave them an understanding of what was coming next, the four noble truths. So, and he was showing that in fact we need uh, the body has to be in a reasonable condition in order to practice spiritual path. If it isn't, then it will it will not be possible to realize the goal of the spiritual path, enlightenment. And there has to be enough uh, comfort or ease for the body, enough food, enough rest, and all those things, exercise, uh, but not to indulge, in order to practice the Noble Eightfold Path. So, and the, all this uh, in, um, indulging in tormenting the body can do it for as long as you like, but it won't lead to enlightenment. This is really what the message of the Buddha was giving them, because in the end, when we indulge the body, what's that about? Indulge in the five senses, sorry, giving it away. It's about the body. And when we indulge in tormenting the, the body, it's about the body. What's the Buddha's teaching about? What's the Noble Eightfold Path mainly about? It's 
It's about the mind, yeah, developing our minds. This is the path to enlightenment. You know, of course, there is the the uh, precepts, the, the physical aspect of it, looking after our, our actions of body, speech, and mind. So it's uh, these things, are the actual uh, purpose of the Noble Eightfold Path, the path to enlightenment, is developing the mind. These... If we develop the body, if we have a great time, we've been to many parties, eaten all this food, seen everything, <laughs> experienced everything, great. But we won't necessarily have a handle on what reality is about. And we may end up at the end of our life saying, and I'm sure many people do, what was that all about? What was that all about? You know, because the, those experiences, if they're pleasant, very nice while they're happening. But in terms of meaning, purpose, no, it doesn't. It's not deep enough. It cannot satisfy us. So this talk is really about, uh, and I, this is an interesting uh, question, you know, because the we talk about these two extremes, and I thought, well, are we going to extremes? <laughs> are we going to extremes? And to use this middle way in our uh, daily life and meditation too. Um, and I think it is an important teaching, you know, this middle way, because um, so much of our lives are centered on experiencing pleasant things, um, pleasant sights, pleasant smells, tastes, touches, and thinking about it a lot. So much of it is uh, focused on that. And of course, that is, as I say, that's pleasant when it's uh, available. And but. It's, it's, it's not, it's, in a sense, it takes us away from focusing on the meditation taking, and the mind. If that is our main source of happiness and pleasure, it means we won't look inside. So this is the importance of the middle way for us, is pointing out where we, we need to look for developing the spiritual life, which is inside. So, but I would like to say, because sometimes people will uh, um, uh, think that, uh, well, I don't know if I'm ready to give up all these uh, sense pleasures, you know, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. And of course, that's an, this is really a practice that the Buddha was emphasizing for monastics in, in this context. It is also true for all of us as practitioners because if we are very more interested in the outside world and experiencing, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting and touching, we're not going to look in here. We're not going to look at home. We're not going to look at the mind, which is where we can make, where we can really understand the nature of this life, our lives, our minds, our bodies, and therefore all of uh, the world really. So it's important to remember that Sometimes, you know, um, lay practitioners, they want, they want to give it all up and so on. It's very difficult to do that. And I remember one, uh, <laughs> one question Ajahn Brahmali had when he was teaching the middle way. And uh, I know the character who asked the question, quite a funny question. He said, can't we just indulge a little? <laughs> I thought that was good. And of course, that's going to be very natural, you know, for everyone, even monastics will have their little indulgences. But they have to have the understanding that this is not going to lead to anything deeper, anything into this deeper happiness. Because often I think, when we think of, I, th I think of them as sense pleasures, you know, pleasures we can have from the senses. 
But what I'd ask is, is that happiness? Is that really happiness? You know, having a great meal and so on? It's good while it's going and while you're enjoying it, but it's not that sort of lasting happiness, the spiritual happiness that we're looking for, the happiness from inside, the happiness from developing good qualities, from practicing meditation, from uh, developing uh, giving and all these things. It's not that happiness that's on offer. So I think for most of us, you know, this is the area that uh, our in our, as it were, indulgence in sensual pleasure. It's an area we can look at and realize this is not going to ultimately satisfy, fulfill me. What is going to satisfy me and fulfill me is developing the mind. The interesting thing is, if you develop the mind, wherever you are, whatever you're experiencing is a lot more satisfying and enjoyable. Because I think the, the biggest suffering in life probably is being a connoisseur. I know, I know people who like very particular teas and p- very particular fine coffees and all this sort of thing. The more you like those sort of things, the more suffering it is if you don't have them. Everything else pales in, exi- in by comparison. So it's a, it's a very good thing to, to reduce our, you know, our interest. Realize, I think most of us realize that the spiritual path isn't out there. It's in here. And of course, I like that story, I often tell that story. Do people know the story of Nathrutin and the key? Yeah, it's not that story, they say. Couldn't get another story. I was thinking of another story, but I, <laughs> it's still a good story. But uh, Nathrutin won. Nathrudin was this uh, Sufi uh, teacher, a bit of a scallywag too. And one evening he was looking outside his house under the street lamp. And uh, he was looking everywhere and very intent. And his neighbor came out and said, What are you looking for, uh, Nasrudin? And Nasrudin said, I'm looking for the key to the house. And, uh, and so the neighbor said, Oh, that's fine. I'll give you a hand. We'll find it in no time. Flat. And so they look and uh, they look all around the place. No, can't find the key. And then the neighbor says, as people usually do, do you know where you lost it? <laughs> Terrible question, isn't it? Do you know where you lost it? You think, God. And being Nazarene, of course, he said, yes, I do. And he said, where did you lose it? And he said, in the house. And the neighbor looked, at the, looked up at the sky and said, why are we looking out here? And Nazarene said, because the light's so much better out here. <laughs> And that's what we're doing. We're going out to the five senses because the light's so much better out there. We're playing in that world. But the key, the key is, of course, the happiness inside the house. Inside the house is heart and mind. That's where the happiness is. But we're out under the street lamps, you know, uh, enjoying the pleasures of the five senses. So that's a, it's a nice story that, that reminds us, and I think everybody knows, really, that happiness, real satisfaction, comes from within. It's not out there. It's not in the new uh, phone. It's not in the new computer. It's not in the latest Netflix release, the, this wonderful dish of noodles, or whatever it is that is your cup of tea. So it's not there. It's coming from in here. and always has been, actually, because you realize all these things that you think are so wonderful, does everybody else think they're wonderful? 
No. A lot of people think, yuck, it's, you know, no, I don't like that food at all. So you realize we are giving happiness to the world from here, not, not from there in. It's not as if it's coming through. Ayakima used to say, there's no hole you can push happiness through. <laughs> We're giving happiness to the world. So the mind that we develop, if it's a beautiful mind, that world will look really beautiful, really attractive. So this is where happiness is coming from. And I think uh, the Nazarudin story is a very good um, example of that. So, but what is this, uh, what is the middle way? Anyone know? I mentioned it. You've got a few clues already. How does the Buddha say, this is the middle way? He said that indulging in sense pleasures is not the middle way. Tormenting the body so that we become enlightened is not the way. But he did suggest another strategy. Oh, I think everybody knows it. Maybe I'm putting it in the wrong way. Yeah, that's it, exactly. The Eightfold Noble Path. It's, it's exactly it. Because it's... Uh, and he... he uh, defines that. He says here, well, what is the middle way of practice? It's simply this noble eightfold path. This right view, right thought, or I prefer right intention, uh, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right stillness or one-pointedness of mind. This is that middle way of practice, which gives rise, and this is very important, uh, gives rise to gives vision and knowledge and leads to peace, direct knowledge, awakening and extinguishment or nibbana. And that's that's how you can tell with any spiritual path, whether it be Buddhist or another religion, if it's really taking us in the right direction, if it's leading to these qualities, we're understanding life more, we are developing more peace uh, in our minds, we are developing direct understanding I think uh, only, yeah, so that's, that is the, the noble eightfold path. And why it's the middle way, of course, it avoids those extremes that uh, the Lord Buddha was talking about, of course, especially the misunderstanding that the tormenting the body will lead to enlightenment. It's this very strange way of looking at the world. I find it quite strange. Um, so, and most people don't think I don't, is there anyone who thinks that indulging in sense pleasures will lead to enlightenment? I haven't heard of anybody. be very popular teaching, actually, wouldn't it? <laughs> but people would soon find out. They'd feel like, oh, wow, no. It's, it doesn't lead that way. It leads, actually, to... Uh, if we can indulge sense pleasures to the max, it leads to addiction and uh, leads to a lot of suffering in our lives because sense pleasures are enjoyable if they're short-lived. But if you have to eat the same, uh, your favorite food for an hour or more, wow, that would be big suffering. And there was a famous uh, French movie, Le Grand Bouffe, many, many years ago, and it was about this group of people that were eating themselves to death. It was just... it was. For the French, that is just a horrific idea. They take food very seriously. <laughs> to see a movie that was suggesting you could eat, you know, just eat until you died. And uh, instead of having seats, they had toilets <laughs> that they were sitting on. It was a very strange film. But it was making the point, these sense pleasures, if they go on for too long, 
they're no longer a pleasure, they're a torture. And, uh, and so this is a good, this teaches us something. And of course, as I mentioned, it's the, why is the Noble Eightfold Path the middle way? Because it's the way to awakening, to enlightenment, because it's developing the mind. These practitioners of uh, tormenting the body, as we've heard about, that I mentioned, they have to have a lot of willpower. But what the Buddha's teaching, what the Noble Eightfold Path is about, is a lot of wisdom power, to develop the wisdom that can free us, to develop the understanding of the Four Noble Truths. So these, this is the difference, this is why it is the middle way. And of course, I think it's important to, to reflect that uh, on the Noble Eightfold Path, if our lives were our meditation, we're experiencing difficulties of problems, we find there are extremes in our lives, we're, we're um, giving a lot more attention to sense pleasures or whatever. It's, it's very important to reflect on the Noble Eightfold Path. And I'll just do that briefly, I think, yeah. because it shows where we need to develop the, uh, our understanding need what aspect of the Noble Eightfold Path we need to develop. And of course, the right view is the Samaditi. so, so important. And it's really, I think this is a series of questions, and do we understand the importance of giving? Do we understand the power of giving? That's really something that we can see in our lives. If Especially for if we're feeling very down in life, giving is a great thing. It doesn't have to be to monastics. Giving of any sort, of material things, of time, listening to people, being there for people. And very importantly, do we, uh, do we really see how the way we act, speak and think is shaping who we are and has results in terms of uh, what we experience, what comes after. Because often we don't. This is karma, you know, what we're, the way we act, the way we speak, and the way we think. It's shaping who we are. It's shaping our experience of now. And so it's a very, uh, very important thing to reflect on, actually. And uh, often, too, uh, another part of uh, right view is reflecting on do we think this life is it and there is no future life? A lot of people think that. Uh, that and this, of course, is, uh, you know, if we have this view, it's going to affect the way we live, actually. And, of course, if there was only one life, even if it's a life full of suffering and so on, it would be over at the end of the life, so no problem. But when, like the Lord Buddha, you've seen millions and millions of lives, you realize, hang on, it's not only the suffering of this life, it goes on and on and on and on and on. I'll be in diapers a million, million times. I'll be, you know, going through all the, all the old age uh, sickness and death. I'll be going through school. I'll be doing all these things. So important uh, to reflect on those things. And most important is, too, to, um, to reflect on... Do we think that it's possible for us to become enlightened, that others have become enlightened? Indeed, that the Buddha was enlightened. I think that's a a very important thing, because if we don't think it's possible, then our practice will not have the direction that we need to attain, uh, to go towards that. And uh, very important to 
to really take on board, yeah, the Buddha was enlightened. What he saw is coming from a totally pure mind, someone standing outside of the box and really seeing things as they truly are. So this is really vital for our understanding of reality, of life, and very, very useful for developing this middle way, you know, seeing what's important in our life. So these these things, and of course right intention, this is the second factor, or right motivation. You know, are we um, really caught up with seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, or touching? Too much caught up with it, um, and looking for our happiness outside ourselves, or are we going to look inside? This is this is the uh, nekama, we call it, nekama sankapa, renunciation, and also developing uh, good, uh, good qualities like uh, kindness, compassion, non-harming, these things are thing, aspects of our practice that we can develop uh, as part of the Noble Eightfold Path. And of course, the, the sila, you took the five, some of you took the five precepts, and that's all about our actions of body, speech, body and speech particularly, and uh, making sure we're not harming others and not harming ourselves either. And last, and the right effort, uh, this is uh, abandoning or letting go of negative states of mind, avoiding them, and developing positive states of mind and maintaining them. And of course, if we develop positive states of mind, it really means we let go of negative ones. So it's a very shortcut. And then right mindfulness, the practice of satipatthana, where we're, we're aware of the body, we're aware of the feelings, we're aware of the mind states, the emotions that we are having, and we're aware of looking at life in terms of the Dhamma, looking at life uh, in terms of the Buddha's teaching. And, of course, the last one is, of course, uh, uh, where the mind comes together, samadhi, right? Samadhi, samasamadhi. And, of course, this is the steadiness in the mind, the stillness in the mind, stability in the mind, very, very important. If we haven't got stability in the mind, we won't see anything much from... I often say, well, it's better with a book, actually, or something like this. If I'm trying to read this card, and it's like this, it's no good, <laughs> I can't read it. But if it slows down a bit, I get a better, better idea. If it stops, then I can read it. And that's like the mind. If the mind is like this, won't be able to understand much. It'll just be what we usually see, a lot of distraction, a lot of busyness, a lot, a lot happening. But if, it's, if it stops, then we can, if the mind stops, it can, can see, can see the nature of things deeply. So it's an important quality. So I'd just like to finish by saying to, that uh, encourage everyone, myself included, to practice a noble eightfold path so we can avoid these extremes of... Uh, um, the physical and mental extremes in life, see what's important and develop that. Develop the mind, develop the good heart. And these are the things that will be for our benefit and happiness. And it will bring the sense of uh, balance and poise to the mind as well so that it can see deeply. And this whole path is to take us towards enlightenment. But on the way, it's a happy path. So this is the point, not, not a path of torture, and not a path of indulgence. So uh, next week, um, I will be uh, next. Sorry, not next week. Next month, 
I will continue with the Four Noble Truths. We can go on with the Four Noble Truths. I thought it was too much today to do both the middle way and Four Noble Truths. So next time we can do that. So maybe now, shall I do, I'll do the dedication of merits? You can do, uh, or maybe we'll have the questions and then we can, if there are any questions, comments, complaints. Yeah, if anyone has any questions, um, please come up. I'll set up a microphone and we'll take a question from the floor and then we'll alternate. We've got a couple of questions online as well. Or you can even stand up and uh, we can repeat the question for those online. So, Yes, yes. Yeah. Ajahn, I've got a question. Yeah, good. Two, two weeks ago I was over at Newbury with a, with a friend of mine. Yeah, we did yeah. some work at, um, on the yeah. site. And um, he stayed for the lunch dana, and one of the comments he made during the lunch dana was, man, this, this food is so good. It's better than I have at home. Yeah, yeah. And I thought, just reflecting on your talk today, hmm. I'm, I'm just thinking, we as donors, whether we've missed the point yeah. in terms of are we, when we, when we give the dana, are we allowing the monks and the nuns mm who are renunciants to kind of indulge in mm. sense pleasure as well because we prepare the food, we prepare the food with love, but we also, I feel mm. that we go the extra mile when we prepare it for the monistics. Yeah, yeah, and whether we are doing, whether that's um, for the benefit of the monistics mm. in terms of their practice. So that's mm. the question. Yeah, I think it's a good question. Um, I think a good question, Sri Juth. I think it, it's a matter of... Um, you know, for the uh, people who are offering the dana, it's their practice, their mind. They're offering with a good heart, with a good mind. And the same for the monastics, too, that take the food. They are practice, they have, you, you can't look after another person's mind, basically what I'm saying, actually. That, you know, you can offer the food, but you can't, you can't offer... The, I mean, the other aspect you could do is bring food that you think... No way they could enjoy it. <laughs> no way could they enjoy it. You know, and that, that wouldn't be good for oneself, would it, really? Um, but I think in the end we have to leave the practice up to the individual. And so most of the monastics, for instance, I say the same, actually, watch exactly what that man said. I never ate as good as, uh, as a layperson as when I became a monastic. The food was much better. You got a buffet every day, you know, and uh, this usually a quite a, a very nice food and people do their best. They go full out and so forth and they want you to eat this, they want you to eat that. But in the end, we have to look after our practice. We have to look after our stomachs as well <laughs> and make sure we eat what is good for us and healthy for us. And so... Uh, and I know Ajahn Brahm, he always says too, you know, as monastics, we have very few avenues of in enjoyment in terms of the senses. Food is one. He, he says not a big, not such a big thing to, um, you know, to worry about so, so much anyway. But of course, you know, we have to look after our minds. And so if we, if for instance, if one just really binges or indulges, it, it won't have a good result mentally or physically, you know. So I think in the end we have to look after our own practice and the practice of giving, give wholeheartedly. That's good. 
and for the monastics, we have to practice. We have um, one of the big practices is, of course, moderation in food. The Buddha taught this quite a lot, actually, moderation in food, concerning food. So that's one aspect of it. And, of course, one of the big teachings of the Buddha is the sense restraint, indriya, samvara. So whatever we're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, or touching, to be restrained, not get caught up with it, not um, get overwhelmed by it, because it will have an effect on the mind. And this is what the impact of the five senses has. You see, this is where desire arises, this is where aversion arises, and this is where delusion arises. I, I, I want this, this has got to be me, this is mine, you know, all this stuff. So it is an important aspect of, of the practice for monastics, but also for all of us. Sense restraint is important because of the um, internet. I mean, the stuff that's out there, my goodness, if you don't, if you don't restrain your mind, I mean, it's just all over the place, I think. It's, it's such a, a smorgasbord. <laughs> so I think it's a good question, but, um, you know, a good question, and uh, I think... As I say, it has to be individual practice, you know. We've got to focus on looking after our own minds, whether it be as a lay person or a monastic. Yeah. So thank you for that. That's a, that's a good one. Yeah. <laughs> I'm glad you enjoyed the food. <laughs> that's good. Yeah. So we've got uh, one question yeah. online. Um, thank you to the person who asked this question. I think it was a really great question. Oh, um, good. Uh, and it, it uh, can gratitude to parents be developed in the service of right effort? And if yes, how can we achieve that? Yeah, of course. Can gratitude be used to develop right effort? It is right effort. Because right effort, of course, is avoiding the negative things. If you, if you know things are a trigger for you, they bring up bad states of mind, anger, irritation, a lot of greed, a lot of desire. Avoid them. That's, that's common sense, isn't it, really? And, uh, and then if negative states of mind do arise, then to let go of them. But importantly, and this is the shortcut, really, is to develop positive states of mind. And gratitude, being thankful to our parents, being thankful for anything, is a positive state of mind. And when we develop positive states of mind, it tends to mean that we avoid negative ones. We can't experience a negative one while we're having the positive one anyway. And we don't have anything to let go of, any negative states of mind to let go of. So yes, gratitude is part of right effort. Any positive mind state is part of right effort. And then to maintain uh, uh, these positive qualities. That's the other aspect of right effort. So it's, yeah, no, gratitude is important. Sometimes people have the attitude, why should I be grateful? It's like I'm giving it to somebody else, this gratitude. But in actual fact, we're the ones that benefit first and foremost. Because I call it, and Ajahn Brahm calls it actually, free happiness when we're grateful. It's a positive, it's a good feeling. But often uh, people have the, um, more the attitude, why should I be grateful? <laughs> Do they deserve it? <laughs> and instead of thinking, wow, I get a lot out of feeling grateful, whether they deserve it or not, is, is another thing. But feeling grateful, having that feeling of thanks, gratitude in our hearts, is a very, very positive thing. And it is right effort, absolutely. The mind is in a good, good state. 
And it's a good state for um, developing the meditation, for looking inward, because this is one of the inner happinesses of life. When we focus on these qualities of mind, like gratitude, thankfulness, this is coming from within us. It's not out there. The source of it may be dad. <laughs> Today we're talking about fathers. The source may be out there, but the gratitude is in here. So it is really developing our minds, our hearts. And this is very, this is right practice, right effort. Yeah. So thank you. Thank you for that. That's a good, good question. So. So I think we've got time for one more from the floor. If anyone has a question, um, please come up and um, ask it in the microphone. Otherwise, we can um, repeat the question if you can't get up to the microphone. Yeah, there we are. Thank you. Thank you for the talk, Ajahn. Oh. Uh, my question is, like, as you... As you said in the talk, like we need to encourage other people to follow this path. Yeah. But sometimes uh, people doesn't have like right view, right? Yeah. But we don't know how to start and where to teach, like from where to start. Yeah. They need to know the basics, mm. especially parents. Yes. Like how to teach our parents and oh, where, from where to start. Yeah, yeah. Now, it's very hard for uh, children to teach their parents because it's the parents don't feel like children should be teaching them. They should be the one teaching their their children. But they're always a good place to start. And it's, it's it's the the brilliance, the genius of the Buddha, starting from the difficulties people have in life, the suffering, the problems they have, and they're looking for an answer for it. Your parents, particularly, because they're getting older. Are probably getting older, probably their sickness is coming and they're worried about the body dying and all these things. This is exactly the area the Buddha is focusing on, you know, because his path, his quest was to overcome those things in this life. So this is very useful, it would be very useful for your parents, but very hard for a child to be able to get that message across. But if we look at, you know, uh, the problems they are experiencing, you know, sicknesses and getting old and, uh, and facing death, then we can uh, use those experiences as a way to point them towards the Buddha's teaching, towards reality, really, towards finding solutions, finding things that bring some peace of mind to them. And what brings peace of mind to people is usually understanding, yeah, this is natural, this is the process of life, um, this is impermanence. Um, this is the unsatisfactory aspect of life, you know. Who wants to get old and get sick and then for the body to pass away? But that's what we've bought into as a human being, actually. So these teachings of the Buddha are very, very helpful because once one has taken, uh, understands them, then they give such relief to us, actually. They give such relief and then people will want to practice more. When they get that relief, then that brings up faith, and they think, oh, it works, it works, yeah, yeah, it's good. <laughs> so I think that's very good. So if you can help them with whatever the problems and difficulties they have, help them with a good heart, and then that will encourage them, I think. So, yeah, thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you. So now I'd just like to finish with the, uh, I think that's it, with the dedication of merits to the dads. Is there something more? Yeah. Sorry. Oh, yeah. All right. Is it on? On? Yeah. I forgot to make this announcement just now. Um, next Wednesday, which is the 7th of September. Yeah. 
What's the auspicious day of the 7th of September? 7th of September. Yes. It's the 8th birthday. Why? All of you should remember that. Why is it only one person remember that? <laughs> no, no, I opaque I, I, I will. I would have eventually, on the 6th, I would have. <laughs> oh, tomorrow's the anyway, Wednesday, the 7th of September, is the 8th anniversary of, new, of the establishment of the uh, Newbury Buddhist Monastery. Mm. It was on the uh, 7th of September, 2012. 14. 14. Oh, 2014, sorry, yeah. my apology. That the, uh, the residents, uh, monks, and nuns of PSV at Mount Santa and Sakamito Rama moved to Newbury on that day. So it's, it's the 8th anniversary and we've got two more years before it's the 10th anniversary and we're going to make a big celebrations. So gear up for that. But if you have a chance to visit Newbury on Wednesday, please do so to help with the celebration. Could be a big day. Could be a big day. Wednesday. Yeah. No, that's good. It's amazing, isn't it? The years go past quite quickly. It doesn't seem that long ago. It started. And also mentioned that the, uh, we are going to install the uh, fire exit staircase. That's right. Uh, from the first floor to the uh, ground floor. So, uh, if you'd like to make any contribution towards the uh, fire exit staircase, please do so. Mm-hmm. Um, it's towards the building fund. Thank you. Thank you, Adrian. And you never know, you might find something for Dad on the stalls. <laughs> Everything sales, isn't it? Yeah, Selling. Father's Day is. Yeah. yeah, that's it. Curry puffs too, you might like curry puffs. So we can do the, uh, uh, like dedicating merit to our fathers, whether they are living or if they've passed away. And we can just close our eyes for a minute and just bring our fathers to mind and visualize saying thank you to our fathers from our heart. As I chant, may you abide in well-being in freedom from affliction in freedom from hostility in freedom from ill will in freedom from anxiety and may you maintain well-being in yourselves may everyone abide in well-being in freedom from affliction in freedom from hostility in freedom from ill will in freedom from anxiety and may they maintain well-being in themselves and for those who would like to we can pay respects to the buddha dhamma and sangha to finish off there we are